God's sunlight and sunshine and the capability we each have of coming together today as we have sung these hymns of praise and exaltation and as we now have opportunity to engage in a consideration of his word, I would direct your mind as we think for a few moments about the subject of hope. You might recall that last Lord's Day morning we considered a lesson that was related to the subject of faith. On that occasion, as we had looked at somewhat briefly at the subject of faith, you might remember we used Hebrews 11 as part of our discussion. In fact, we learned a number of lessons based on that chapter about that remarkable and powerful subject. As we looked at faith, however, and considered a bit about it, perhaps we might remember that the closing verse to 1 Corinthians 13 says, Now there abideth three, faith, hope, and charity. As we remember then the character of those three today, I would ask that you ponder with me at least for a few moments one aspect of the subject of hope. Hope is such a tremendously powerful subject. Quite often it's been noted that the human frame in many ways relies and takes as a degree of comfort the message of hope. When we expect and look forward to something, it provides such great strength and great sustenance and great ability to abide. A person can endure so much when he or she knows that the time is coming when, in terms of hope, that burden will be lifted or that situation will change or that matter will be taken care of. The very matter of hope, then, is something that's embedded all throughout the character of God's Word. I've listed a verse or two at the outset of that screen or that picture there on the wall. I'm reminded of the text of Psalm 139. Where in verse 14, the psalmist of all noted, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. Hope, you see, is a part of what God desires and has placed within us things that we can look forward to, things we can build a bedrock foundation upon. Today, as we think just a bit about hope, I would encourage you to think with me that the subject in many ways is broad. We will focus basically on but one aspect, its source and some of the characteristics. As we do that, I would ask that you note with me an incident, a scene about which we read just a moment ago. Nestled at the opening part of the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to John, we encounter a man, an incident that is so filled with hope, lessons about that subject, we will return to that today and seek to better understand it and apply the lessons of hope to ourselves. As we do that, notice I've rehearsed some of the matters concerning it beginning at the bottom of that, of that slide. It was the time of year when one of the major feasts or festivals was taking place at Jerusalem. Jesus, as was dutiful in his life, he attended that feast. We note, though, that he encountered a man positioned at or nearby between the sheep gate and the temple. This given man is such that his name is not provided in Holy Scripture. 
We are not told what his name was. And yet, for timeless examples from then until now, folks have looked at his record, the example to be found therein, and have found even in ourselves a hope that he come to understand too. It's somewhat interesting to notice that as this man was positioned at this place, there was a pool there. We notice in the King James translation it's called Bethesda. In the Greek, that actually is the word not necessarily Bethesda, but rather, as I have indicated, Bethzatha. Either way, one calls it. We know that it was a place that was of great importance for many in that day and time. Consider with me what some of the features were of that place. Considering it briefly, this was a place for those that had very serious illness. In many ways, it was a place for those that were hopeless. You see, we learn from other sources about this given location that those who had sought treatment for some particular ailment, for some particular disease, and who had recognized the unsuccessful nature of that treatment, this was the place where they came. This was the place, if you will, of last resort. It was a place for those who could find aid and help and things to aid them in no other place and in no other way. This was their last hope. As one thinks about the nature of that given case, we notice so interestingly that there was a man there in verse number 5. We note he had been infirmed for 38 years. Almost four long decades he had suffered this malady, this ailment, this debilitating case. As we learn later, it apparently had a strong degree of paralysis with it. He was unable to make it into the water even when the water had the healing and medicinal powers available to it. Don't you know that this man, time and again, when he observed the agitation of the water and the stirring character of it, he had so longed to be able to get in it. And time and again he had failed. Time and again the sources and the availability to him had not met with success and time after time he found himself just as hopeless as before. Can you imagine the sense of despair and discouragement that had often filled his heart when, just as he had managed to crawl to the water's brink, someone else had made it in before him, and thus the agitation and the powers thereof were not available to him? You and I, as we read that given text and think about the 38 years that this man had been infirmed and 38 long years he had been in this case, we might well note that apparently the hope that was within him was not completely extinguished because when one day Jesus came, we notice in verse number 6, Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case. He saith unto him, What wilt thou be made whole? Jesus began a conversation with this infirmed man and asked, Wilt thou be made whole? In the verse that followed, verse number 7, we notice the very narrative that this man answered him in a very quick way. I have no man to put me into the water that when it's troubled, I may be able to be healed. This man still had a desire and spirit within him, interested to be healed, interested to be made whole, interested to again enjoy some of what he had formerly known in life. However, he quickly noted to Jesus that apparently his case was hopeless unless someone were always willing to be at his side because he couldn't make it to the water quickly enough by himself. 
And unless someone were there, unless someone were available to him constantly, he felt it unlikely he'd be able to make the point of being healed. That's when Jesus rather abruptly interrupted verse number 8. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. Jesus quickly then stated to him the ultimate reality of what he had so long and so much desired, but it did not rely on that water. You see, Jesus said, You rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And isn't it amazing that in verse number 9 an adverb is employed? How long did it take for the healing to occur? The text says, Immediately. Jesus had the power on the spot to heal this man's debilities and to take care of them entirely, and that he did. All the while, in verse number 9, immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. And on the Sabbath day, this, all, this event took place. The remarkable fact is, we have seen the very hopes and aspirations and dreams of this man addressed. Had we read the verses that followed verse number 9, we would have read about the case of how men reacted to this great event that happened to this infirmed man. In fact, as we look at some of the other features and aspects of it, we have looked at how Jesus responded to this man. I have hinted that there were other responses by men later in this chapter. We will rehearse them just a moment as we look at how their response was so different than the Lord's. For right now, in building to that point, let's look at some observations, some lessons that may be of benefit to you and me today. We know that this man, of course, lived a long, long time ago from our perspective, but what lessons you and I might be able to learn, the hope that he experienced and the reality of it that he obtained. What then about the source of hope? What could be said in regard to it? Might we admit at the outset at this point in the lesson, we each are in desperate need of hope. Perhaps that goes without saying, but as we consider the world in which we live, the affairs of my life and yours, the things that we often see and observe and experience, oh, what an exalting and abiding thing it is to consider hope. I've listed a few thoughts on your mind, not to make it so overwhelmingly negative, but nonetheless things that are simply real. Consider some of them I've listed. You and I know that there are many people in our world who seem to constantly abide in hopelessness. And I've listed just a few examples. We turn on the nightly news and see people living in various African countries who day to day do not have the food to eat. Perhaps their government leaders ignore them completely while they themselves engage in civil warfare over something that's nearly meaningless. And all the while thousands and thousands are starving and practically at the verge of death on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. What kind of life would that be? Those individuals, it would seem, are almost in a case of perpetual hopelessness. But what about those other nations around the world in which we see various things that tear nations apart? And the people and folks who live therein are literally again ripped away from the character of the necessities of life. From time to time, our missionaries who come and share with us their real experiences in these other places, 
tell us about individuals and people who are living in places that nearly are unimaginable to us. It's just hard to think what a day would be like to live in that place. I read recently about a leper colony on one of the islands in the Caribbean. We each know from our studying the Bible that leprosy was just an awful disease. As one reads about it in Leviticus chapters 13 and 14, one's mind nearly numbs at the thought of what it would be like to be inflicted with leprosy. And yet there are still folks who have that today. And yet as one thinks about what that disease brings, the parts of your body literally rot away. You look at a person's face and their nose isn't there anymore. It has rotted away or parts of their face are gone. It's as though you're looking at a skull and yet they're still alive. Or you look at other parts and features of the body. What if one lived like that? There are people who do. And yet, as you think about the degree of hopelessness in that way, bring it to a more personal level. We each, in our daily walk of life, at some point will face a time when we don't know where to turn. An event has transpired, something has happened, and we are at wit's end. There's nowhere to turn, it would seem. As you stand beside the casket and the one whom you love so dearly but unexpectedly died in that car crash, what am I going to do now? Or perhaps that child or parent who is inflicted with some disease and it's noted to be very much serious and terminal. What am I going to do now? Or you get that call at 2 o'clock in the morning and your child is in jail or has been in an accident or something has happened. You see, the tragedies of life, it seems, no, no exemptions. The good are not exempt. The wicked are not exempt. The poor are not exempt. The rich are not exempt. They come to all of us, don't they? That thought alone challenges us to notice that even in our world, it goes a bit further than that, doesn't it? Our newscasters and other governmental leaders point us to the reality of nuclear war from time to time. They paint a grim picture of what may transpire and come to be. Point is, we live in a world that often, it seems, presents hopelessness be it personal situations or be it national affairs. All the while, we have in our midst and before us something that can provide the greatest encouragement, the most real hope imaginable. Inasmuch as we've looked at these things, I would point you to ancient Israel for just a moment. Ancient Israel, of course, knew God. He had called them, established them, gave them land, made them the nation that they were in yet. Consider with me two examples of how they faced hopelessness, at least apparent hopelessness. The first one that I listed for our consideration was in Exodus 2. The last three verses of that chapter, verses 23 to 25, we make know there that when the children of Israel found themselves in Egyptian bondage, oh, how they groaned and felt the oppression of a nation who cared not for them other than their slavery, it was there we read, though, that they cried unto God, and God heard and he delivered. You see, though they appeared hopeless, they at least did know where to turn. They did cry unto the God who'd formed them and made them many years earlier. Throughout her history, though, she often would know hopelessness. One scene that strikes so amazingly in her mind is the one I've recorded from the book of Second Chronicles. 
If you notice, especially in chapter 32 of that grand and noble book, the reading is itself somewhat lengthy, but probably is very familiar. At that time, Judah was under the oppressed weight of the Assyrian Empire. Assyria was strong and mighty militarily, and no one had been able to that point to defeat her. She simply decided, conquered, attacked, and won. At that time, Ashurbanipal, the very one who was the leader of the Assyrian Empire, set his sights on Jerusalem. And to that extent, he sent one of his emissaries to Jerusalem to warn them of who was coming. Rabshakeh was his name, and when he came, he said, Don't you people of Jerusalem let Hezekiah trick you into thinking he can beat Assyria. For he'll be like every other nation. He's going to fall, and he's going to fall quickly, and he's going to fall fast. The people of Jerusalem trembled. Here they were, unable to defeat Assyria. Here they were, no match for the great Assyrian war machine. And yet Hezekiah tried to paint a picture of the deliverance of God. Here was a people who, it would seem, were hopeless. But yet God brought forth deliverance to them. He was able to provide that which they so desperately needed. Could it be then that as we think about hope even today, it leads us to recognize that we do need to know that there's a source for it. Men may not have it, and most often don't, but there is another source. Might we look then interestingly at that source and paint a very bright picture, a picture that this man in John chapter 5 soon come to learn too. Look with me, if you would, at some other text that challenges in that way. In verse number 6 of our reading, Jesus asked this man a question. He said, Wilt thou be made whole? Jesus, in looking upon that man, felt a bit of compassion. He extended to him what no one else at that compound apparently ever had. Jesus was aware of his condition and asked him a question, Wilt thou be made whole? And the very question implies that Jesus was going to do something about it. It would have been cruel for the Lord to ask him that question and then turn and walk away from him and do nothing. Jesus inflamed the fires of hope within him. Wilt thou be made whole? It may be that this man had heard about some of the events that had transpired in Jerusalem earlier. After all, Jesus in Cana had turned water to wine back in John 2. In John 4, he had healed the nobleman's son. Maybe someone, as word had spread, had told that to this man. When Jesus asked him that question, it could be that his eyes got so large with hope. His life was so filled again with spirit and with energy as he thought about what could happen. Notice in verses 7 and 8, that as in the aftermath as Jesus asked that, we might well pause and note that that man was healed immediately. Where is the genuine source of hope? As you and I think about a world of over six billion people and our leaders that threaten nuclear war and things that seem so dark and horizon that's so dim, we need to realize men do not offer hope. They never have, they never will, y'all. In fact, how often did the Scripture say, as in Psalm 118, verse 8, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Hasn't that always been true? 
Indeed, our confidence ought to be placed in the one who ultimately can do something about this. Men may fuss and fight, and with selfishness they may initiate but never complete. Who is the one who not only can initiate but bring to finality? Jesus didn't just promise hope. He brought it to reality. This man was healed immediately. You and I, as we think about others whom we know, quite often they may promise great response and tremendous hope when all the while, when the dust all settles and the smoke all clears, it was basically nothing more than idle words, unable to be fulfilled because men are not all powerful as God is. The thought as we consider these things challenges us too that in Psalm 146, verse number 3, we also remember yet another statement by the psalmist where there he says, Put not thy trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, who is no help. You see, there are issues in life where men, though they may have good intentions, they don't have the answers. I mentioned earlier those personal catastrophes that may well occur. Maybe you suddenly discover that that place of business and you're laid off without a job to support you. You may find again that you're standing beside a casket of a loved one and don't know where to turn. Men may try to console and try to comfort, but where is it that one may turn to find that genuine and lasting hope that men can never offer? It is none other than in Jesus. Think with me again about that infirmed man. Jesus brought to him what for 38 years he had so much desired, what he had longed for but no doctor had been able to give him. No physician, no nurse of any kind had been able to provide it, but the Lord could and he did it immediately. Now today as we think about what our lives hold, physically God doesn't work miracles today as he did then. We understand that. But it's every still bit the case that he can touch my life and yours and extend a measure of hope that is absolutely timeless. A hope that will far exceed anything men could ever offer. A hope that is so genuine and grand that it will fill the entirety of life and point to a reality that is far greater than this one. All of that is a genuine hope, isn't it? It's no wonder then again that Paul said there are about a three and hope was one of them he listed, 1 Corinthians 13, 13. The very nature of this hope does ask us, I think, to see in verses 9, 10, and following one last observation about how men often react. I mentioned earlier that this would ultimately come to our study today. Men, as they often react, react just the opposite of the Lord. Jesus extended hope to this infirmed man and brought that to reality. But after he was healed, what did men do? They criticized. They rebuked him. In fact, because it was on the Sabbath day and they thought that this man was violating the Sabbath, they in fact challenged him to recognize his sinfulness and to cease doing what he was doing. Isn't that remarkable? Here was a man that had been sick for 38 years and these Pharisees, self-righteous as they thought they were, were unable to see in this any light or ray of hope. All they could see was a reason to criticize, a reason to bring down that man that Jesus had just healed. Aren't men that way sometimes? 
the very ones you think you might be able to turn to for a degree of sustenance and help and encouragement are the very ones who will kick you when you're down. That's the way men are, you see. But that's not the way Jesus is. We can turn to Him in any hour of the day, any time of crisis, or even when times are good, and rest assured that He has an ear that is attuned to those that are His own. That should be one of the greatest comforts of my life or yours. The very real hope that we have. Think about some other texts and passages that help us to see the hope that can be found not only in Christ, but in all that God offers. In Psalm 50, verse 15, in the days of the long ago, the psalmist there made this very powerful and blunt statement. As God spoke through him, he said, that in the day of trouble, I will deliver you. That's a strong passage, don't you think? In the day of trouble, I will deliver you. Later on, we see examples of that in other instances, such as Acts 16. Here we find a noble person named Saul. By that point, he was called Paul. But he had been flogged and beaten in Philippi, and what's more, thrown into a prison. It may well be that his body had, was very bloody by that point, perhaps tortured in the sense that it was a very uncomfortable place, and yet, and yet, who else was in that prison at midnight? It wasn't just he and Silas. It was none other than God being there too. For as they sang praises to God, those prison doors were open as the earthquake took place, and God used that event, filling the hope that Paul and Silas had, to redound into His glory. You see, God fulfilled that promise of Psalm 50, verse 15, didn't He? He had delivered Paul and Silas out of the occasion of that trouble, and they lived to yet preach the very message that had put them in the prison the first time. Those thoughts challenge us again to remember Psalm 46, verse 1. As the psalmist so loudly echoed, God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Who do you and I turn to then when times get rough? Do we leave God last? Is He the last one to whom we turn? Is He the one that we kind of save as the one of last resort? Or is He one whom we with excitement will turn to first, knowing that through Him, He in promise of His word to deliver from trouble will be there to aid, support, and guide those who are His own. It's well been noted that as we think about that very question, to ask it is to answer it, isn't it? Sometimes we each fail because we don't beseech Him far sooner than we do. Many of those troubles that we face come upon us because we've waited too long to seek Him. We need to have an attitude much like the Lord had. How fervent and often was He in prayer. How frequently did he suit his thoughts and turn them to the nature of Christ? In fact, when Jesus was on the cross, what greater events could there be than that in terms of affliction and difficulty? And yet on that cross, seven statements Jesus made. Of those seven, three of them were direct prayers, statements to God. The first one, the fourth one, and the seventh one. Isn't that interesting? First, middle, and last, the Lord turned His attention to His heavenly Father and on Him He relied. Shouldn't it be so with us? Shouldn't that be the ruling thumb and guide for our life too? These thoughts perhaps bring us to the very last observation in the lesson this morning. 
We have learned so far the apparent hopelessness that men offer. We've also learned that there is genuine hope to be found in Jesus. But as we close the lesson, might we note that the grandest of all hope is not based on that which is physical. That alone is an exciting thought, isn't it? Consider this last element of the lesson today. What about the hope that is involved in the gospel? You see, the spiritual realm is the one in which the grandest of all hopes is set forth. We understand that humankind are those in sin, and without God we are separate and apart from Him, and as described in Ephesians 2.12, without hope, absolutely without any eternal hope at all. When the time of death comes, it is, in that case, extremely sad. But yet, in life, Christ reaches forth with a hand of hope and gives not only the reality of a hope here, but a hope that transcends and goes beyond the grave. How was it Paul said it in 1 Corinthians fifteen nineteen? If in this life only we have hope in Christ Jesus, we are of all men most miserable. Most miserable. Any hope that can't go beyond the grave, beyond the tomb, is a hope that is ultimately rather lifeless and vain and empty. And yet in the gospel we find that which can put a smile on our face as we think of that hope that goes beyond the grave. Because you see, Jesus' blood can take care of sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 6 verse 23. The character of that hope that follows that sentence of death is such that once sin is taken away, we have there the reality of eternal life. That's genuine hope, isn't it? A hope that is so wonderful and good. A hope that in fact buoys and sustains. A hope that will carry us through the difficult times of this life. In John 3 verse 16, just two chapters before our text today, as Jesus spoke with that man named Nicodemus, he did say in verse 16 of that noble chapter, the golden text of the Bible, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Through that obedience to the gospel, the recognition of what is to be found therein and the promises that God gives to those who do obey, that is itself the greatest of all hopes, isn't it? the hope of being with God, with the Holy Spirit, with Jesus forevermore. Today, does that hope enliven your heart? Is it real and is it tangible to you? Or is it just a far distant thing that really you don't think about very much? You see, that hope should be, as was the case for this infirmed man, he rejoiced at the immediate healing that he had, and don't you know that throughout the remainder of his life, that hope and the reality of it was something that changed him forever? The hope in Jesus will change us too. Once you come to be a member of his body, a Christian, washed those sins away, you are a person who is made new. You've been made whole. You've been sanctified, justified, made right with God. Today, if we could assist you in doing that, what an honor it would be. What a great time of rejoicing. Jesus demands this of us. We must appreciate that that hope doesn't come freely. We must respond in obedient faith to Him. When you do that, you understand the importance of belief. 
the necessity of repentance, the important power of containing confession, and finally, baptism in order for sins to be remitted. If we could assist you in doing that, we would be happy to do it today. If, though, you have become a child of God but have walked astray from that first love, realize that you can come back to that first love. The church in Ephesus was advised to do that in Revelation 2. We could aid you by prayer to do that as well. Today, if either of those would be the need of your life, don't hesitate or delay. Don't put it off until a better day, for a more convenient season may never come. If we could be of assistance to you today, let that be known publicly while together we stand and while we sing.